Hey there, my name is Pastor Roy, and I'm the lead pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly. And we're so glad you've joined us for our online service today. Well, it's the beginning of summer, so to speak, being July. And for July and August, we're doing a series that we've wanted to do for quite a long time. And it's a series called Summer Hymns, where we're actually going to look at eight of the hymns of the church. And we're going to look at the history of them and where they... What, what the thought was of the author of those hymns, uh, the writer of those hymns, what the thought was as they were, they were writing them, and, and what the biblical truth is about those. Have you ever had your mind wander during a, a service, a, a Sunday service, maybe during the worship music, maybe during the sermon, maybe during prayer, your mind just kind of wanders off. You don't even realize it at first. But you find yourself thinking about other things. You're thinking about lunch. You're thinking about the argument you had with someone earlier this week. You're thinking about what your kids are doing right now. You, you wonder if the person in front of you, did they even realize that their shirt's on inside out? Well, in 1865 in Baltimore, Maryland, a woman named Elvina Hall found herself in the same position during her pastor's prayer. As she stood in the choir loft, her pastor, Pastor Shrek, prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed he, he was notorious for these long long prayers and during this prayer she began to think of many things her mind started to wander a little bit she thought about jesus she thought about the cross and her mind wandered away from the words her pastor was praying and it was then she began to form the lyrics of a song in her mind not having any scrap paper around, she picked up her hymn book and she, she, she turned to the inside cover and she started to scribble down the words that were coming to her head. After the service, she went up to her pastor and she showed him the words she furiously jotted during his prayer. And, and we don't know if he was thrilled about the lyrics that he was shown or maybe he was frustrated that she didn't pay attention when he was praying or, or maybe he was frustrated that she vandalized the hymn book. But nonetheless, he kept her song. That's when he realized the church organist, John Grape, composed a new song earlier in that week. And he called it, All to Christ I Owe. But he had no lyrics for this song to go with it. So Pastor Shrek realized these two things, they fit perfectly together. The lyrics that Elvina had written and this, and this song that, that John had composed... So he sent them off to Professor Theodore Perkins, publisher of a periodical called Sabbath Carols, and the rest is history. The hymn became a favorite, and churches have sang, Jesus paid it all for over 150 years. One of the awesome elements of this hymn is that we see God uses ordinary people to impact others. Uh, to our knowledge, Elvina didn't have any musical training or credentials. She was an obscure choir member. She loved to sing about the Jesus that saved her. Story has it that during church renovations at the Monument Street Methodist Church, the organ was moved into the home of John Grape for the time being, until they could finish the renovations. So he took advantage of having access to this organ 24-7, and he started to compose these very simple worship songs. This amateur organist would compose the melody to one of the most beloved songs of the church. You see, you have two separate people, separate people that aren't sure that what they're offering up has any value. But we see God take these offerings and turn them into something bigger, 
two seemingly small offerings from two seemingly small-statured people in the local church would impact the larger church for decades and decades. I don't know any more about Elvina Hall's background. I don't know what her life, early life consisted of. We know that she was about 45 years old when she composed the, uh, this, this song. I don't know what Jesus brought her out of. But as you read the lyrics to her hymn, you can tell she understands the grace of God and understands that this debt that she had was too big for her to repay. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. It it sounds like the song that could be written by a woman that we're going to look at today in Luke's gospel in chapter 7. Verse 36 says this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. Now, if you grew up in church, you know that the Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the religious leaders. And with that came status, came influence. However, they had elevated the technicalities of the law or the rules above the spirit of the rules. And love and grace was not what they were known for. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he challenges their way of thinking. He challenges their systems. He challenges the religious way of doing things in favor of living this life filled with truth and grace. And they didn't like it. They didn't like that he upset the system they had in place. He disrupted it. And people loved that he did. The the common people loved that he taught with such authority, but such grace and love and compassion. And so the Pharisees made it their mission to upstage him and trip him up and take him down ultimately. So Simon, a Pharisee, invites Jesus over for dinner. Simon is likely the most educated person in his town. He's revered. He has authority and he has influence. And he invites this man called Jesus to dine with him. And it becomes apparent that he doesn't ask Jesus to come over because he's interested in following Jesus. It's not because he suddenly recognizes his own need for a savior. The reason we know this is because we watch the way that he treats Jesus. In Middle Eastern culture, there was a way that you treated a guest. There was an honor to it. There was a way that you showed respect when someone comes into your home. As was customary, when a guest entered your home, that host would greet you with a kiss. He would put his right hand on your left shoulder and he would kiss you on your right cheek and then do the opposite. Afterwards, the guest would be brought a basin of water for their feet. The Middle Eastern streets were dirt and and mud, and and so obviously wearing sandals in the dirt and mud, your feet got quite dirty and nasty. It was a given that you would be offered water to wash. Many times a servant would come out and wash your feet for you. But if the host wanted to show you special honor, he himself would do the washing. Then you would be sprinkled and anointed with oil or perfume, sometimes a mixture of both. Simon, the Pharisee, does none of those things for Jesus. It appears to be an indicator of his level of respect for the rabbi. Without saying a word, he says a lot. He says, I have some questions for you, but I don't view you with the respect that others do. I don't see you as an equal, and I definitely don't see you as someone that I need to honor. Then the story takes a turn. It says that a woman enters the Pharisee's home, and this woman is the absolute opposite of Simon in every way. Luke says in verse 37, 
When a certain immoral woman from the, from the city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Now, in this culture, it was not uncommon for people to be around for a meeting like this. Word would get around that this Pharisee was having a guest, and people would come around, come, and they would, they would gather around the outside. People would be on the inside of the house. They would have their head in the window. It was almost like entertainment. Two educated people were gathering together, and they'd likely have some sort of heated discussion or debate, and they wanted to see every second of it. But this woman shows up, and this woman, as we were told, has some sort of past. Some speculate that she may be a prostitute, but the text doesn't say that. She does, have, however, have some sort of public shame attached to her and is most likely promiscuous. And it's shocking that this woman shows up in this very public setting. And there were likely whispers, and there was likely stares from other people. And from what we gather from the rest of this story, it seems that at some point before this moment, she has encountered the gospel message and the grace of Jesus. Perhaps she heard him preach on the the Sermon on the Mount, or or maybe she tried to get close to him in another setting, and the crowds were so big she couldn't get close. But But she knew this. Because of his, his grace, because of the message she had heard, she was now changed. She had come face to face with the love of God for the first time. And she knew that this man, this man was different than any other man she had interacted with in the past. And she needed to get into his presence. So verse 37 says, when she heard he was going to be nearby, she chooses to ignore the stares and ignore the whispers. And she grabs this little jar of perfume, perhaps the best she has to offer and she crosses the threshold of this very intimidating place because she no longer cares about anything but being with Jesus then it says in verse 38 then she knelt behind him at his feet weeping see t- tables in the middle east were were short and you would sit down on the ground and often your feet would be folded to the side and behind you a little bit And it says she comes up from behind him. And perhaps she'd practiced all day what she was going to say to him. If she could just get close to Jesus, this is what she would tell him. This is what your words meant to me. This is what your grace means to me. She She would tell him that she is a life that has been changed. But as soon as she nears him, her emotions take over. She just sobs. Which sometimes happens when you're in the presence of someone that you are so thankful to. I remember when I, was, when I was ministering in Petrolia, my lead pastor who had hired me, uh, he was someone who gave me my first chance in ministry. Someone who treated me like family and treated my family like family. Someone who I considered a friend and still to do to this day. And when he announced his resignation after I was working together for eight years, I was stunned but surprised by how emotionless I was about it all. A couple weeks later, I was asked to say a few words during his farewell service, and I was pretty calm about it until I went to say a few words. I grabbed the microphone, and as soon as I went to say a few words, a few words came out. I wanted to thank him for you know, what he meant to me and what he meant to my family, and that's when an emotion decided to rear its head in that moment, and I bawled in front of 300 people, like ugly cried. It was embarrassing. I just... I couldn't get the words out. This is the emotion emotion that this woman is feeling. And so it says, 
Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. See, her tears dropped to the ground and onto his feet, and she notices this. And without thinking, she lets down her hair, and she wipes his, his feet clean with her hair. And there's, there's so many multiple levels of symbolism here. First, she does what Simon the Pharisee did not do. She cleans Jesus' feet. She anoints his feet with perfume and she kisses them as well. She shows all the signs of respect that a host should, but didn't. She also utilizes some, th some things that she's utilized in the past to get men's attention for the wrong reasons. You see, normally she would use her eyes to get a man's attention and signal her intent and availability as promiscuous. But here, her eyes are... are cried tears of gratitude and, and joy. For a Jewish woman in biblical times, letting your hair down was purely taboo. And especially in public, this was seen as immodest and something that was reserved for your husband on your wedding night. Without any thought, in public, she lets her hair down, and, and for, but for a different reason. Her reason now is to wipe the tears and show her honor and to, and to serve the one who freed her from her past. She uses the perfume, perfume that she would have once used for attracting men. This time, she uses them to show tribute to her Savior. And lastly, she kisses his feet. Not like the kisses that she's given other men, not to seduce him like she normally does, but she uses her lips as a sign of respect. Romans 6.13 says, Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead but now have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. This scene, this, this woman, this, this act of devotion plays out plays out for, in this verse in real life. It's a beautiful, beautiful example of a life that has been changed for the glory of God. It's this picture of worship. It's unashamed, unconcerned about those around her. It's just her and her Savior, and she brings her best and just lays it at his feet. She literally brings this expensive perfume and pours it all over his feet. And normally, to, to anoint somebody, you would use a little dab, usually of cheaper olive oil. But this is her giving all of her to Jesus. And all eyes in this moment are on her, especially those of the host, Simon. Verse 39 says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Well, Simon doesn't say this out loud. But he thinks to himself, ah, just as I thought. You see, they claim he's special. They claim he's a prophet. They claim he is of God. But if he truly was, he would know this woman's reputation. If he was a holy man, he would not allow such depravity to be in the same room. Never mind kissing his feet. And so he judges Jesus as well as this woman. And the ironic part is this. The gift that, Jesus, that Simon doesn't think Jesus has, the prophetic, Jesus uses to read his mind. In verse 40 says, Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. 
Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people. 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And that's the whole story. It's this very simple story that Jesus tells. He says two people owed money. One about a month's worth of salary, and the other about a year and a half's worth of salary. Both were equally forgiven of their debt. He asked Simon, both are forgiven. They can't pay. Who's going to love more? Well, verse 43 says, Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. But she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and there are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said amongst themselves, Who is this man that goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, this whole story that Jesus tells us so that he can relate to Simon and to everyone who's in earshot, Simon, you're cold to me. You aren't able to recognize my grace because you think so highly of yourself. You don't think you need a savior? You are over there judging this woman and looking down on her? But she knows the weight of her sin. She's come face to face with her imperfection. She recognizes her need and she understands the value of humility and forgiveness. She understands what you don't. She can't save herself. Only her faith in me can save her. And you don't get that. It's this incredible picture of what a submitted and humble heart will produce. But in contrast, it's also a picture of a prideful heart that puts their faith in their own righteousness and what that creates. Let me unpack this just a little bit more. And here's what Jesus did not say. He did not say that this woman was saved because she loved much. She was saved because she, she he didn't say she was saved because he, she washed his feet and poured perfume over and honored him. She didn't earn her forgiveness. That would contradict pretty much the entire New Testament. We don't earn the right to be forgiven. What he's saying is she was already forgiven. Her response to grace was this heartfelt worship. He said to her, your faith has saved you, not your actions, not what you did here today. But we, when you encounter the message of grace, when you encounter the full grasp of what God's grace is, however, however, however long ago it was, it's in that moment that you accept the gift of mercy and put faith in Jesus. That's the moment you're saved. And that was the same thing for this woman. The second thing he's not saying is this. He's not saying that there's more value in the one who sins more. Like, the one who sins more loves more. That's not what he's saying. It's not the amount of sin in a life. It's the amount of sin realized. Let me say that again. It's not the amount of sin in a life. It's the amount of sin that's realized. See, Simon didn't think his need was great. He felt he carefully kept the law. Therefore, his record was squeaky clean. This woman's outward sin was great, but Simon's inward sin may have been even more. See, it's the recognition of your need that counts. 
You and I do this in a roundabout way sometimes. We look around and we compare ourselves to others, and then we justify how sinful we are or we're not. Like, okay, so I gossip, but it's nothing compared to... Or, or, or I have anger issues, yes, but I don't throw fits of rage like blank. Sure, I lie once in a while, but it's just white lies it don't harm anybody. See, it's not the, the sin or the amount of sin that's in your life. It's the amount you recognize his mercy. You recognize his grace and his forgiveness. This, sh- this story shows us a couple things. Number one, you need God's mercy. I need God's mercy. You owe a price that you can't pay. You can't because you're broke. Imagine this. Imagine you're driving, uh, driving out for the day. And you get pulled over by the cops and they tell you that you were doing 130 in an 80 zone. They take your car, they impound it, and they demand that you appear before a judge in court tomorrow. You show up and you realize that your dad, who's a judge, is the one presiding over your case. And you're thinking, well, this couldn't have worked out any better. My dad loves me. He'll let me off. But then you get a thought. My dad is a very good and just judge. Now you're kind of nervous because you're not sure how this is all going to play out now. You thought you did before, but now now you're not sure. So he has you stand before him and he reads you your charge and asks how you plead. And well, you look down and you plead guilty because that's what you are. And so he looks at you and he says, well, that'll be a fine of $1,000 or two months in jail. Guilty as charged. And you realize, I'm broke. I mean, $1,000 may, may as well be a million dollars when my bank account is in overdraft. So sheepishly you choose, I guess I'll serve the two months. The bailiff puts you in handcuffs and leads you out of the courtroom. And, and then you hear a familiar voice just as you're leaving. Your dad, the judge, yells, hold on. And he stands up and comes out from behind the bench and takes off his rope and he pulls out a checkbook and he writes a check for a thousand dollars the exact amount you owe and he holds out the check towards you you have a choice do you accept this gift this mercy or do you for some reason reject it and choose to serve the time your father is just the penalty had to be handed down for the crime To go around the standard of the law or standard of the court and just ignore the crime goes against the character of who he is. But at the same time, your dad loves you so much. In order to fulfill his goodness and his love for you, he made sure the price was paid. He paid it himself on your behalf. He pays the ransom for your life, not because of what you did or did not do, because of your position as his child. The other thing this story shows us is worship is a natural response to the mercy of God. When you really fully grasp the mercy of God, it leads you to this natural place of worship. So we get caught so we get caught up worrying about what other people think of us, even when we're gathered amongst ourselves. We come to church and we're afraid to sing out. We're afraid to lift our hands. We're afraid to be expressive in any way because we're afraid of how that will look to the others around us. And we see in this story, the woman, she didn't care. She showed up in a room that she knew she was not welcome in because she just wanted to worship Jesus. It didn't matter who whispered. 
It didn't matter who stared. Jesus was there, and the heaviness of the forgiveness that he, that he gave her brought her to tears. It brought her to her knees and caused her to fall at his feet and give him her very best. It's all that mattered. Her past was now her past. Her future was now filled for the first time with hope. And the price to wipe out that past, well, she knew it was one she could not repay. And for that, she worshipped Jesus. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin, sin has left a crimson stain. You washed it white as snow. These are the words that were scribbled down inside the cover of a hymn book by Elvina Hall. And again, I don't know her history. But I know she understood the depth of God's grace and his mercy. She knew that it was a price that was paid for her, that was paid for you, that was paid for me, that we, we possibly can't repay. But it was a debt that was paid on our behalf. Let's pray. Father God, you are a God filled with forgiveness and grace that when we submit our lives to you that we become a child of yours and, and our sin no longer sin no longer is is, is a, a life sentence anymore you paid a price that we we couldn't possibly pay and we as we look at the words of that that hymn Jesus paid it all all to him I owe. It's, it's overwhelming at times. And so God, I pray that um, we wouldn't get caught up in trying to do all we can to repay. It's not ours to repay. It's been forgiven. We've been let off. And all we can do is just respond to that mercy with our worship. And so may we spend the rest of our lives worshiping you. May our lives be an all-out living offering of worship back to you. God, we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us today. I, I pray that um, you would click the link in the description here. We have linked the, that song, Jesus Paid It All, and just spend a little bit of time, close your eyes, and listen to the words and, and, and realize that you are loved, you are cared about, and he paid it all for you.